Good morning. Doing well? Fairly well? Okay. So, you know, it's, it's amazing how this year is flying by. I mean, this season. It's um, Thanksgiving is a week and a half away. Is that right? Wow. And in light of that, remember every year the, the community Thanksgiving dinner and Mira still needs volunteers? Good. Well, there's Mira. Go volunteer. It's a great opportunity to serve the community you live in. So talk to Mira. Today we're going to be in John chapter 3. As I'm planning my way through the Gospel of John, not looking to do every verse or every story, but looking for every chapter that says what's the primary heart of this chapter that we need to hear. And today we're going to talk about the most famous verse in the Bible, which is? John 3.16, I kind of gave you a hint when the Gospel of John, you know. Um, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We all have different versions, isn't it interesting, you know? Actually, I use the ESV, the English Standard Version, but what's in my head is the New American Standard. That's what I read for 40 years before I switched over to this. Anyways, so I think this is one of the most important messages I'll bring from the Gospel of John, maybe from the Scriptures. When I say the most important or famous verse in the Bible, and it's so familiar to us that maybe we've just kind of, oh, blah, 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 God loves me. He sent his son to die for me. I know no one's that rude. But we've heard it so many times, maybe we've lost the wonder of it, the amazement of this. So hopefully today we can slow down and look at that. But I want you to think of this and pay I want to say pay close attention, which implies you don't usually. And, and I don't mean that. I don't mean that. But I kind of do mean that. Because <laughs> um, I know how I listen to messages. But I want you to think of today's message, this concept, as you know, like the foundation of a house. I was talking with Wayne back here earlier. Sorry, Wayne, I'm using you. But Wayne designs homes. And he's talking about he's designing a home up on the side of the hill up here that has a 43% slope to it. So all the foundational things that have to happen to give this house stability. And if you've ever owned a home, especially an older home, it doesn't matter how beautiful the house is, it can be completely remodeled. Inside be gorgeous. But the foundation is crumbling, what do you have? A disaster waiting for you. So the foundation of our faith today to talk about the love of God, our condition outside of Christ, and what it means to believe in Christ. So, we're going to look at John chapter 1, Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. We learn, we learn later in the gospel that he's actually a secret believer. <clears throat> he doesn't want anybody to know. At Jesus' death, he comes out with Joseph of Arimathea to take the body of Jesus and bury it with respect. Because when you're crucified, you don't get a respectful burial. Not in, not in this time in history. So Nicodemus, at this point, I'm not sure he's really a believer, but he eventually became one. And I'm in Matthew. I need to turn to John. So he comes to Jesus at nighttime when no one can um, know he's interested in talking to this, this Messiah figure. And he comes to him and says, we know that you're from God because all the signs are doing. 
And so let's pick the conversation up there in verse 3. So if you're in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, I'm sorry. I'm, Lee, I'm going to walk through all the verses, read them, then I'm going to come back and step through them each one. So I'm going to read 3 through 8. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter in a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So that's our, our immediate context today. And I want to walk through each of those verses with you so that we can um, um, carefully look at what's being said. When it says there, you must be born again. You've heard that many times. In fact, that, that was way more popular 20 years ago. People would say, oh, are you born again? So maybe you've attended church your whole time, but maybe you attended a more traditional church, a more liturgical church, where that phrase wasn't used so much. And someone would say, you say, I'm a Christian. Oh, are you born again? Anyone, have you ever been asked that? Yeah, it's, and it's kind of, um, you know, it became a cliche, especially, especially back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, in my experience, this cliche of being born again. It's, it's not so much used anymore, but let's revive it as a concept. Born again. In fact, Nicodemus thinks it's odd. Jesus says, you must be born again. He goes, that's not possible. How do I enter again into my mother's womb? And if we push that thought too far, it's kind of really creepy. You know, um, but that's what, that's what John hears. I was born once. Now you're telling me to be born again. And this is interesting because as a Pharisee, in fact, you, if you don't, if you aren't born again, you don't get into the kingdom of God. As a Pharisee, what do you think he's thinking? By definition, I am a child of Abraham. And by my position in my Israelite religion, I'm the top of the chain, food chain. What do you mean I have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God? To a certain degree, some of the self-righteousness of some of the Pharisees, they kind of define the kingdom of God by them. And Jesus is saying, your position in Israel makes no difference. Everyone must be born again. So as the story, as he reads on there, truly I say to you, unless one is born again of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is used, using plays on words here. Jesus John loves to bring out the play on words that Jesus uses. So first of all, born again can refer also to born from above. So is Jesus saying you must be born again a second time? If you're born physically, as Nicodemus, Nicodemus hears it, then you need to be born spiritually. But the word can also be you must be born from above. You're born physically from this earth through your mother. Now you must be born from the spirit of God from heaven. Does he mean born again or born from above? That's a question. Does he mean born again or born from above? The answer is yes. That's, that's the way Jesus talks in the Gospel of John. That's how John brings out Jesus' words of this, um, um, what's called double entendre. You guys know words have meanings. 
And every, almost every word, maybe every word, has multiple meanings. So, Jesus is using these words in a way that communicates more than one meaning at a time, and he intends that. Same with the wind blows wherever it blows, so with the Spirit of God also. In the Greek, the word wind and spirit is the exact same word. So if you're hearing this in Greek, you're hearing, oh, the pneuma blows wherever it blows, and so it is with the pneuma of God. So he's doing a play on words with the word pneuma can mean spirit, it can mean wind, it can mean breath. So Jesus is doing something here that the reader in the Greek language anyways would say, whoa, whoa, this is interesting. What is he saying? We could go into the details of all that. But what I want to do is look at this idea of being born again. You see, to Nicodemus, being a Pharisee doesn't guarantee you anything. You think it does. But your position in the religion of Israel doesn't guarantee you anything. Everyone must be born again, must be converted, must be regenerated. And today, I want everyone sitting here to, to step back, maybe drop some of our preconceptions. Maybe if, if you are a Christian here, or you, you, you call yourself that, you've walked with Jesus for years, I want you to step back and go, have I really been born again? Do I really understand what it means to pass from death to life? If today you're here and you, you don't claim to be a Christian, I'm thrilled you're here. I'm going to ask you the same question, though. Jesus says you need to be born again. What does that mean for you? And what are some beliefs you might have that need to be jettisoned, their lies, and how you see who Christ is and what he's done for you? And this is what is the heart of the gospel. So I want to dip in and out of this story, but I want to ask the question or address the essential need for regeneration. Have you ever heard the term regeneration? It's a, te it's a technical theological term. It comes from the Latin. And you know what it means in Latin? Or wh what the Latin word means, literally? Born again. That's what it means. It's two Latin words that means to be born again. And so it, it's a concept of, of, biblically speaking, all through Scripture, especially the New Testament, of who you were before you knew Christ to who you are after you know Christ. And, and it's very important to grasp who we were before we knew Jesus so that we can truly understand and appreciate the love of God, which we'll get to in a few minutes in John 3.16. So I want to set this premise right now. We're going to talk about your sin and my sin, um, which automatically in our culture raises a guard. People throw a wall up. Don't call me a sinner. Don't tell me my lifestyle is sinful. And... And so now we're immediately defensive. We're not listening to each other. But if I could set this one foundational statement, and then we'll build on it, hopefully, or, or develop it, and that is, if you believe God loves you, but you're not a sinner, you're amazingly lovable. Why wouldn't he love you? You follow me? But if you grasp what the Bible says about the depths of your sin, and God deeply loves you, deeply loves you in your sin. And he has sent his son to solve your sin. That magnifies the love of God to, to a level that should overwhelm us. As opposed to getting defensive about being called a sinner, you, you, can, you can disagree with me all you want. 
But to grasp the love of God, I have to grasp how unlovable I was or am. You with me? You don't have to agree with me, but you understand me. Okay, so listen to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It's not on the screen. I want you to listen to it. I'm jumping out of John going to Paul, who Paul now describes our unlovable nature, which then magnifies the love of God. So listen to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 that describes you and I prior to coming to faith in Jesus. And Paul tells the Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who is the prince of the power of the air? Satan. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's a sober statement. I, I mean, I want you to listen to that. Three things. You're dead in your sins. There's no spiritual life in you or me prior to coming to Jesus. We think there is. The world is deeply spiritual. That's what the, much of the world wants to call themselves spiritual, but they don't want Jesus. And, and I understand that. We're created beings. I don't, I don't think atheism is on the rise. I really don't. And a, a belief that there is no God. But spirituality, a general spirituality, is definitely alive and well. But, but more of a spirituality that is about a God who is somewhat benign and, and passive and loves me no matter what and has no demands on my life. I think that's the general spirituality we have in our world today, uh, which is not the biblical spirituality. It's not the biblical God. You were dead in your sins. Satan is your master. And, th and the last one is sobering. According to this, God's wrath rested upon you. Okay, so Keep that in mind, because John's going to bring this up too. But like John, Paul says this in verse 4. In light of that, you're dead in your sins. Satan is your boss. You don't even know it. And the wrath of God rests upon you. It's not a good place to be, is it? So if, if you're that person, God must hate you, right? He can't wait to slap you into hell. So listen to verse 4. In light of all that, Ephesians 2, 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, loved us when we were dead in our sins, when we were following Satan and didn't even know it, and we were under his wrath. The great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Mercy, grace, and love drove God to deliver us from the reality of our sin. That, verse 4, I always say those two little words, in light of our situation, but God, are two of the greatest words in the Bible. I don't bring a solution. God does. So now let's go to the most famous verse in the Bible. John 3, Jesus is still talking to Nicodemus about being born again and the need for it, the essential need for it. You must be born again. So let's start in verse 14. John 3.14. So Jesus is telling how he relates to the God of the Old Testament. He's talking to Nicodemus is an expert on the law. So he, we're going to drop in in verse 14. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So 
You, I, t- I mentioned it last week, but let's, let's step back a bit. In Numbers chapter 21, I think it is. Is it Numbers 21? Yeah, Numbers 21 is the story of the children of Israel in the wilderness, and they are rebellious. They're worshiping idols. They are whining to no end about all the pleasures they had in Egypt. They forgot their slavery in Egypt. They're just remembering the food they ate. They had better food in Egypt than in the wilderness. And they are whining. And, and, and all of us have a capacity to whine, do we not? Some of you believe that. Um, so they're whining about, God, you're not giving us all the great food we had in Egypt. So God, God is getting tired of this. Grumbling is a, a you know, I won't go into that, it's another sermon. So what does God do? He, he to get their attention, sends serpents into the, into the congregation of Israel that are poisonous. And they call out, oh, please deliver us. So Moses prays for the people. And God says, I want you to take a, 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 some brass, turn it into a serpent, put it on a pole, and put it in the midst of the people. Whenever they get bit by the serpents, they look up at the brass serpent, and they'll be healed from the poison. So that is a precursor to Jesus. And Jesus says there, let me get there. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So just as you knew the story of the serpent, the Son must be lifted up. What does that mean? Okay, some of you have been with me a long time. When I ask a question, I'm okay with answers. Not yet. First, first he had to be lifted up on the, the cross. And then we look to the crucified Savior who was then buried and rose again. So all part of a package deal, if you, if you could. Um, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Often we tell people, why don't you believe in Jesus so you can go to heaven? R- right, we say that? And, and that, that's, that's good, but it's, it's incomplete. And it's a tad misleading. We've, we've equated heaven with eternal life. Heaven is the time you die before your res- resurrection of your body. You are where? In heaven with Jesus, without your body. I'm teaching a class on this on Thursday night, so come join us. But that's not what all he's talking about. So eternal life involves going to be with Jesus after I die. But eternal life is way greater in a larger concept than getting going to heaven when I die. Notice it's present tense. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. You have it right now. There's this life you have from death to life as soon as you trust in Christ. And this life comes with meaning and purpose, strength through the power of the Spirit to do what honors God, the purpose of serving one another, This life is something we live right now and becomes exponentially greater after the second coming. So so don't just reduce, believe so you can go to heaven when you die. As true as that is, it's so much greater to trust in Jesus today and get the eternal life. This is the difference between quality and quantity. The eternal life that I live forever once I go to heaven as opposed to the quality I get right now. No matter how hard your life is, all over the world, people have very difficult lives. But they have a quality that is joyful and purposeful immediately 
because of the eternal life they are given. So let's go to verse 16. Now we're stepping into this. So he, he ends 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now the famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Just leave that verse up for a while, and we're just going to pick it apart. Let's start with world. God so loved the world. The Greek word is cosmos. And in John, cosmos is not referring to the terrestrial globe. It's not referring to the the hard-packed things of the world. It's referring to the people of the world who are opposed to him. That's how John uses cosmos. The people of the world who don't follow God. They're in rebellion. They worship idols, or they worship themselves. See, I I don't think the modern Western culture worships idols. I think we worship ourselves. And so we've kind of realized we're the top of the food chain. So so heck with those idols, they're useless. But I'm important. So I, I think we've raised ourselves up to that idolatrous level. Whatever your idol is, God so loved this idolatrous world. God loved, so loved this self-loving world, this selfish world, whatever word we want to put on there to describe rebellion against God. God so loved you. And that word so, what does that mean? I mean, it emphasizes something, but listen to how the New English translation translates it. The New English translation tries to bring out some of the nuances of the English or the Greek. For this is the way God loved the world, it says. This is the way God loved this rebellious world. He gave his one and only son. So what's proof God loves you? But this is important. This is very important. Often we say, I don't think God loves me because he didn't answer my prayer. I don't think God loves me because I'm sick and he didn't heal me. Or my my wife or my mother or my father was sick and didn't heal them. Doesn't God love me? And we can look at some circumstances in our life where where maybe God did heal Daryl's wife or mother, but didn't mine. Does God love Daryl more than me? And, And that's easy to fall into that circumstantial trap where we look at our circumstances and wonder, if God loved me, why doesn't he make it easier for me? And those are good questions. Good questions you should talk to God about. I really believe that. We shouldn't just throw them aside. But what is the quintessential, most important, (laughs) you know, words that come in the head don't come out of the mouth when you're a public speaker is very embarrassing. The most important thing to prove to you God loves you is in the midst of your having your back to God to say, I don't care about you, God. He says, but I care about you so deeply that your rebellion has created a gap between me and you that you cannot solve. So I'm going to solve it. And I'm going to send my son to become your sin. This is so important. Christ became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He became our rebellion before his father. He took our shame so that we become his children. This is the love of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it's such a, a, 
nondescriptive phrase, gave his only son. The gave there is, is, is four letters in English, five in Greek, to describe the whole cross experience, the torture, the beating, the murder of Jesus Christ on the cross. His only son. Not that you have three sons, one's worth getting rid of. But the idea of the only begotten son of God is Jesus has a special relationship with the father, the son with the father, that our relationship with our sons or daughters pales in comparison as we, as we analogize things. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So what does it mean to believe? I, I do this several times a year just to keep us thinking. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Give me some synonyms for belief. Trust, what else? No. Surrender. Adore. Honor. We're going to get that one in a minute. Faith. So belief and faith are actually two English words translated in the same Greek word. Regularly. Even John 1, 9, to them who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So you've heard, have you received Christ yet? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you have faith in Jesus? All these things are synonyms. But in our world today, when you look at, if you went online, I didn't do this this week, but before I've done it, there's a certain percentage of Americans that claim to be followers of Jesus or believers in Jesus. And it's very high, relatively speaking. I think it's in the high 60s now. It used to be in the high 80s, 20 years ago. They believed in Jesus. But I wonder, I wonder if a lot of that is mental assent. Do you know what I mean by mental assent? That intellectually I'll say, sure, Jesus is the Son of God. Sure, Jesus died on the cross. Sure, Jesus rose again, if I take it that far. I believe in this person. But do you trust in that person? There's a big difference. There, there, there's an action taken to say, I understand this to be true. Now I'm going to stand on it and trust in it. So th this analogy may fall apart because it just occurred to me this morning. I was wiping the counter at home. Paper towel got it wet and wiped it. Teresa goes, there's some Clorox wipes under the counter there. I said, I know. I believe in Clorox wipes. <laughs> but this is sufficient. So her point was that paper towel and water does not kill the germs. Your understanding, your acknowledging the fact that there's Clorox wipes under underneath do not kill the germs. Get a Clorox wipe out was her, her point. So I followed through on my faith. And, um, and so we need to ask that today, all of us in this room. If you're someone who calls yourself a Christian, Sure, I believe that. But are you trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation? Are you trust that, that he has called you correctly, named you correctly, a rebel against him that he deeply loves? And he has come to take upon the penalty of your rebellion so that he can bring you the mercy and grace of God. 
Are you trusting in him alone? Or are you, one, saying, I'm not that bad. I don't need him. Two, I, I got a lot to offer to this. Let's make this a 50-50 deal, Jesus. Your grace half, my works half. I want to earn this. The American way. We used to be. We won't go down that road. <coughs> um, the idea of trusting is, I've said this before, I bring my resume to Jesus and it's blank. I got nothing. Oh, Jesus, will you save me? Because I got nothing to offer. That is that place of humility that he then gives you everything. There's two options here. You believe you get eternal life or you perish. There's no, there's no neutrality in the world. Very important to understand. There's no neutrality that says, you know, I'm neutral and I'll figure out which way I want to go. Let's listen to this, verse 17, the, verse, the very next verse. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. He is not trusted in the name of the only Son of God. So there's two choices here, condemnation or eternal life. It, it, everyone, and, and we're going to show in a minute, everyone is, um, starts off in condon- condemnation. We are children of wrath. There's a way out. But don't think in neutrality. There is no neutrality in this. So is Jesus the Savior or the judge? Jesus, Jesus said there, or, or, or Jesus says God did not send his son in the world to judge the world, but to save the world. So the incarnation, the word became flesh. Why did he come? To save you from condemnation. That's why Jesus became human. But don't mistake that condemnation doesn't come from God. It does. In fact, we go to the end of John chapter 3, and look at what it says here in verses 35 and 36. For the Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, present tense. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God, look at it. What does it say? Remains on him. So it's not this neutral position that maybe someday the wrath of God is currently on those who aren't trusting in Jesus. It is the default position of all humanity. So in that wrath, which is a, which is a, it should horrify us. God has provided a way to go from a child of wrath to one of his adopted children. And he's given it to you to decide. I put it before you. What are you going to do with it? Later in John, Jesus gets more specific. Listen to this, John 5, 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Look at this. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment 
to the Son. This, this is really important. There are people who misunderstand Scripture. They don't, they don't put enough thought to it. Well, the God of the Old Testament is the mean one that judges you. But Jesus of the New Testament, he's nice. And he loves you. He would never judge you. According to this, who's going to be our judge? The one who died to save you. The one who deeply loves you. Who became sin so that you didn't have to live there any longer. But if we throw it aside, he is our judge. Another play on words here. Verse 21, for the Father raises the dead and gives life to them. Th- this is, this is in, in Jesus' ministry, he's raised people from the dead. And it says, and, and it gives the Son, also gives, gives, the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus hasn't raised anybody from the dead yet in John. There's a play on words again. Jesus was going to show us in John chapter 11, he has the power to raise Lazarus from the dead, to show he has power over death. But a play on words. This is referring to that eternal life. God has given the Son the ability to give you life. Not just biological life, but eternal, purposeful, comprehensive life. So why has the Father given all judgment to the Son? Now we're going to come back to the idea of honor. John 5, 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The idea of, you can say, and, and, and Jesus is like this demarcation line of, it divides people. Can you talk about being spiritual out there and not get judged? Can you talk about uh, a, a nebulous God you believe in and not be judged? You can talk about God my Father and not be judged. But as soon as I say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I've drawn the line in the sand, whether I knew it or not. He divides humanity. And if I say, well, I, I, I'm, I'm not real big on Jesus. I just love the Father. What's Jesus saying here? You don't honor him. You don't honor the Father. You've missed the point. And John, Jesus is going to drive this home in the Gospel of John time and time again. I and the Father are one. You can't separate it from your belief system. So I want to give you some, some summary here. There's no neutrality. You have eternal life or you're condemned. This is the beauty and glory of the gospel. God has already pronounced the sentence, condemnation, death. Christ will someday come to enact that judgment eternally. That's the book of Revelation, chapters 19 and 20. But he came first due to the overwhelming love of God for you and me to become our sin, to be condemned himself, in our place. Meditate through the Garden of Gethsemane and the crucifixion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son, who's been with the Father for eternity, in some way, whether real or perceived, I I can't enter into the mind of Jesus and the Father. I think it's real. 
father has turned his back on the son so he can have favor on you and me. Christ became our sin so that we become children of God. And he calls us to believe, to receive, to hope in, to trust, to honor, all the synonyms we can come up with in his beautiful son. So today, to the Christian in the room, and here's what I want to be careful of. Because I claim to be a Christian doesn't mean I am. All right, you understand that? Because the words come out of my mouth, I'm a Christian. Doesn't mean I understand what I'm talking about with that word. So those of you in the room who say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm, you, usually when people say I'm a Christian, it could be nebulous, but they say I'm a follower of Jesus, they get it usually. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus is the Lord I follow, the Savior I trust in. But let me ask you, Christian, are you trusting in the person of Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? And your resume, is it half filled out? Or is it blank? If it's true that you trust in him alone, do you understand that being born again is more than receiving a benefit? It's more than, well, someday I get to go to heaven. But it strongly implies a new way of life. A life that seeks to honor the Son of God. That we filter through every area of our life. Through the power of the Spirit. We're going to learn more in John 14 to 16. We'll get there in a couple months. We seek to apply Jesus to every area of our life. The large and the small. That at the end of each day, how I, I try to think through it. When I put my head in the pillow. God, my desire today was to honor you. And we talked about that day. you're in here today say, I'm not a Christian. I'm uncertain about this thing called Christianity. I'm not sure I, I, I follow Jesus as the Son of God. I want to encourage you. Paul tells us that today is the day of salvation. Don't delay. Scripture tells us to repent from our sins. Repentance is the concept of I'm, God's behind me and I'm going against him. I'm moving away from him purposely. Repentance is the imagery of saying, this is horrible. This is contrary to who God is, I'm learning. I'm turning around, that's repentance, to turn around from your sin and to grab hold of Christ. Say, Jesus, save me. That's faith. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. If you don't have repentance, then there's a good chance your faith is, 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 is shallow. It's a faith to turn from the sin that has captured you and grab hold of the Son who redeems you and empowers you through the Spirit to live a life that honors Him. Turn to Jesus and grab a hold of Him as though your life depends on it. Because it does. Also in this, I want to encourage you today, if you're not a Christian, if you sense right now, and this is what the Spirit of God does, if you sense right now in your heart what I say is true, don't suppress it. Don't suppress it. Talk to God right now. Say, God, if, if, if what Tony is saying is true, confirm that now, please. The Bible tells us we have this power to suppress the Spirit and turn away from what He's calling us to be. Do not suppress that. 
But in that, that right now as you're thinking through this, that conviction that comes upon you, you count the cost. This isn't simply about a benefit of going to heaven someday. Count the cost is I'm choosing to follow Jesus Christ in my every area of my life. It's a battle. You talk to the people who brought you here, anyone in this room, and sometimes it is hard. Sometimes I'd rather just knock it off and quit. But I know inside there's nowhere else to go. Jesus is the only way. He'll tell us in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. It's not necessarily an easy life, but it is a life full of joy and purpose. I'm not real big on altar calls. I know I'm, I'm saying this now because I know I'll get a question afterwards. Why didn't you do an altar call? Altar calls, I've been to many crusades when many people come forward and receive Jesus. And I've also learned that it's an emotional thing that satisfies you, but the majority of people don't follow Jesus after that. I'm not against them. I'm not saying they're wrong. But I'm telling you where you're sitting right now, if, if you feel that conviction of the Spirit, if you call out to Him before you leave this building, and then you come out in that hallway, you find me or you find the person you came with or anyone else that's a stranger and say, do you know Jesus? I want to tell you something I just did. Today, I made a choice to follow Christ. I'd love to hear that. Because that puts you into another realm of life called the people of God. And I said it's not easy, but it is full of joy. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your patience with us. And as I read your word, Lord, I, I know someday, someday, because you have sent the Son not only to redeem us, but someday to be our judge. That in some way, that patience runs thin. So I pray today, Lord, people in this room who you're convicting would turn today. Today is the day of salvation. I also pray, Lord, for those of us who have known you for whether it's a month or 40 years, are reminded of why we are saved, to live a life that honors your Son, which in turn honors you. And you've empowered us to that end, Father. Help us to grasp there's no greater purpose than loving other people to the honor of your Son. Lord, thank you. You are so kind. You are so good. And Lord, as we sing this last song, clear our minds of what we're going to do in an hour lunch or play, whatever it is, and just give us a vision of your glory right now, Father. In Christ's name, we praise you. Everybody said, amen. amen. Please stand up.